Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. You, you can avoid recklessness or impetuousness by imposing a little sludge before people do something that they might regret. I'd like some sludge on the sweets drawer at the house. <laughs> you and me both. And I wish that, that I wish donut purchases. <laughs> you had to be filled out in triplicate. I wish they would ask me for the information that I couldn't find when I was trying to make my <laughs> vaccine booster appointment. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined by my forever co-host, Rodney Evans. Hello, everyone. We are also joined today by Cass Sunstein. He's the Robert Walmsley University professor at Harvard Law School and chair of the Technical Advisory Group on Behavioral Insights and Sciences at the World Health Organization. From 2009 to 2012, he served as administrator of the White House Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. And in his spare time, wink, wink, he's a prolific author whose many books include How Change Happens, Too Much Information, Nudge, and most recently, Sludge, What Stops Us from Getting things done and what to do about it. Cass, we're big fans. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. On today's episode, we're going to talk about sludge, what it is, why our systems are covered in it, and how we can get rid of it. But before we unpack that, let's get the sludge of a check-in round out of the way. (laughs) Hopefully it won't be too sludgy. All right. So we'll begin this episode like all our episodes with a check-in round. And today's question for us and our esteemed guest is, what is something that you appreciate about yourself? And we'll go Cass, then Aaron, and I'll finish it off. I appreciate my affection for dogs, which I think shows good judgment on my part. That's fantastic. I appreciate that I kind of roll with whatever my conditions are. If it's hot or cold or I'm somewhere I don't know or somewhere I know really well, I tend to sink into whatever the context is and make the most of it. I appreciate that mostly I find humor in things, particularly things that are not very pleasant. So (laughs) the most uh, challenging moments in my life, I often find myself with like tears of laughter in my eyes, which I think is, you know, a coping strategy, but a useful one. I dig that. So today's topic, all things sludge. And I guess we want to start by asking you, Cass, for the uninitiated, what is it and how do you define it? Sludge is friction, paperwork requirements, forms you have to fill out online, waiting time, interview requirements that are in-person interview requirements, (laughs) the various things that prevent us from getting where we want to go, doing what we need to do, getting what we deserve to get. Sludge is a curse. 
And so those sound like very recognizable <laughs> forms of sludge. What about some kinds of sludge that we might not knowingly interact with on a given day? What are some of those like mundane examples? Well, if you move from one house to another, as I recently did, Mm -hmm. you might have to change your utility plans. You might have to shift your address from one thing to another, and that might turn out to take hours of misery and frustration. You might have to deal with the post office. You might have to deal with your electricity provider. You might have to deal with your water provider. I'm trying to keep my emotions in check as I describe (laughs) this list. Uh, This is a very mundane feature of human life. When you go from one place to another, you have to do a bunch of sludge things. And you might think, as many of us do, well, this is just life and it's no big deal, even though I despise it and such hair as I have, I'm starting to pull out. But you might think to yourself, does it really have to be this way in the 21st century? And the good answer to that is no, it doesn't. It's so funny that we're talking about this because I've been in a bit of a sludge conundrum for the last few days with the state of Washington, registering for unemployment insurance for employees that we have and dealing with taxation and things when we don't have revenue there. And it has been one of those... I would pay any amount to not do this moments, and now I have a name for it. There we go. So if if someone is trying to get some benefit to which they're entitled, it may be that they're not healthy. It might be that they need some training for something. Maybe they need a permit, and maybe yeah. they need a license. It can be that that's a, that's a terrible problem. And what are some of the most surprising or maybe even shocking types of sludge that you've encountered? I think some of the worst forms of sludge are getting licenses to do a job. So states all over our beloved country have occupational licensing requirements. So if you want to be a landscape architect or if you want to do something involving cutting hair or helping people who have some kind of problem where the the technical expertise required, it's real, but it's not the kind of thing where you should have to wait six months or a year or devote uh, a zillion hours in uh, training to get some hours, but not a zillion hours. So those are the kinds of things that are, are, are kind of shocking. In the book you write, sludge comes from private and public institutions, from small and large ones. It comes from national governments and state and local authorities. It's kind of everywhere, but what I'm wondering is, why is that? What are the what are sort of the underlying reasons or origins? Is it human nature? Is it something more bureaucratic? What have you found in your research? It's a great question. Thank you for it. So when I worked in the White House under President Obama, I saw sludge being developed. It's like sausages being developed, except it's <laughs> even more disgusting. The, the process of, uh, of de- developing sludge when it's bad can have various different features. It can be that there are lawyers who are being really cautious. This is on the government side. So mm-hmm. they might think, I don't want people to get a 
license who aren't entitled to the license. So let's make them fill out 17 forms or 17,000 forms rather than one form. And that, that can be occupational hazard of the legal profession. It's, there's not any malevolence in it. They're just really cautious. So that's one form. Another form might be that there are people who are kind of ambivalent about giving out the relevant thing. It might be money. It might be education. It might be training. It might be abortion. It might be a vote. And they might be not so excited about giving it out. And they might sludge up the process in order to make it harder to get. And you can take your pick of the more highly publicized or less lovely versions of sludging up. I just invented that on the fly, sludging (laughs) up something in order to make people get it less. So that's a second reason. A third reason might be not kind of lawyers being too cautious, but just kind of regular people at a company or let's say a local government who are thinking we want to make sure that people who get, let's say, a job or people who get a visa or people who get to come into our whatever, might be our building, it might be our uh, workplace, that they really are entitled to. And the the sludge that they're imposing is well-motivated. They just aren't thinking enough about the question whether it's excessive if you could achieve the goal more easily. So that's the, in some ways, the most insidious, the most infuriating, where it's people that may be a credit card company or a cell phone company or people who are, you know, running a sports team are not trying to make things awful for people, but end up doing that just because they don't want to get the unqualified people getting the relevant thing. That's Mm -hmm. a good goal, but the means are overkill. One thing that reminds me of in our work with just often with large and very bureaucratic systems is sometimes I see sludge created, maybe not intentionally, but not, you know, unintentionally fully that that's a bit about just avoiding conflict or making a unpopular decision or just being really clear it's like avoidant is that something that you noticed in your research and and see cropping up yes completely so it might be just habit so mm. i've been in meetings with governments where the point of the meeting is to reduce sludge. This is between 2009 and 2012 when I was working for President Obama. And people would come into the meeting as if the assignment were to explain why the current level of sludge is the right level and why, in fact, even more sludge would be a good idea. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The whole point of the meeting was to figure out ways to cut sludge. (laughs) And it might be a habit where if you've had a practice, you know, you might be a big company that's just used to dealing with employees in a certain way, and then someone asks you, how can you reduce the sludge so the employees have a better experience, and you might defend the status quo. So Mm -hmm. it it can be habit. It can be thinking about the harms that reducing sludge might create. So suppose you have a form with uh, a zillion questions that people have to fill out in order to, let's say, qualify for financial aid so they can go to university. It may be that you think if you reduce the questions, some people are going to end up getting the financial aid who don't deserve it because they Mm. didn't get 
put the question that would show they are fraud people or they are undeserving people in some other way. And that, that can be a reason why it's, it, it, it kind of sticks, even though it has outrun its, its purpose. It's not about habit. It's about risk aversion. Mm-hmm. It's it's funny. I see one other source for sludge that crops up again and again, which is somehow the intersection between these drives that you've been talking about and technical debt. So when I call the credit card company, I enter my credit card number and then they transfer me to the right department. And then that department says, enter your credit card number. And then you do the, you go around around the merry-go-round of sharing the same information or filling out the form in triplicate or telling the DMV something you already told the State Department, and it's because our systems don't talk to each other. Did that also show up for you in looking at Sledge? And and do you think there are technical hurdles we have to cross in order to even begin to address this? It's a fantastic point. So for any of us in the last two years, there's some chance we've been asked for exactly the same information 12 times, (laughs) and and it's a time tax. So it's not as bad as falling into a ditch, but it has a little bit of the effect on the human brain of falling into a ditch when you're asked (laughs) for the same question. Your your rear end doesn't hurt quite as much, but you're feeling that you've been treated as if your time doesn't matter. That's painful, and that's the time tax. And you're completely right that our systems don't talk to each other as much as they could. And in some ways, their failure to talk to each other is a way of protecting privacy. That's a good thing. But there's actually a memorandum, probably the most obscure memorandum that I've ever had the privilege of co-authoring from some year 10 or so years ago, which is about sharing data. I co-authored it with Jeff Zients, Z-I-E-N-T-S, who is right now the president's uh, principal COVID advisor. And it's, it's about exactly the problem you described. And it was intended as a little effort to allow more sharing of data, so as to re- reduce sludge. And the, the, the point I think you're bringing up is there's a balance to be struck. So for everyone who has to enter or say the same information 12 times, that person dies a little bit. Not literally, of course, but it's it's a little like that. It's, it's, a, it's a problem. And uh, we have to balance that against what happens if, let's say, the agency X in the state shares the information with agency Y. Now, if that really poses a risk to personal privacy, that's terrible. But it might be that the risk to personal privacy is something that you'd have to be very imaginative to generate. And the time saving from the sharing of the information is something real. Well, especially when I'm going to get my personal info hacked by the Home Depot credit card every 12 months. (laughs) Completely. (laughs) It does seem like In a couple of the examples that you've already given us, Cass, whether that's talking about financial aid or access to specific health services, the worst kinds of sludge interact with essential services for our most vulnerable populations. And that combo seems like evidence of maybe intentional design. Why is that, that 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 interaction happens? Okay, let's pause over your great point. So there's a quotation from uh, a guy in his 80s who, in a book about 
basically this kind of problem, saying, you know, I'm, I'm sick now and I'm 87, and they're asking me to fill out all these forms. Mm-hmm. And you can almost hear the mischief or the kind of humor in his eye, as well as despair, saying, I'm, I'm 87, now they're asking me to fill out these forms? When I was <laughs> maybe 40, I could have now? And your point is that sludge often hits the most vulnerable people. It's on people who are elderly or not in good health. Sometimes people are suffering from anxiety or depression. To get help from anxiety and depression Mm -hmm. requires you to do things which any person would feel really anxious or depressed to have to do. And that's, that's, you know, that's... uh, not the right way to handle a mental health problem in a society that aims to help people. Or it might be that people who are poor are being asked to do a zillion things. And uh, if you're poor, you have to focus, of course, on your economic situation, and often with a degree of urgency and desperation. And then if you're being asked by some company that purports to help you or some local government that purports to help you to fill out 80 pages of forms to get the help, you might say, yeah, right, or good luck with that, or something a little more colorful than those things. Women often are the disproportionate objects of sludge, and that can be especially unfair because they're bearing a disproportionate amount of the burden of the family anyhow, or maybe they're raising a kid or two on their own. So the fact that that sludge is often imposed on the most vulnerable member of societies, it would be funny if it weren't so cruel. It's just the opposite of what we need. But uh, you're right that it looks like it's intentional, and sometimes it is. So if you have a program, let's say, about which the the state is very ambivalent, let's say it's a program that gives economic help to people who are needy, it may be that the politicians are divided on it. And they might say, okay, we'll go forward with the program, but we're going to have a lot of sludge in it. And that's a way of diminishing, let's say, the economic outlay or the reduction in work incentive or whatever the people who don't like the program are concerned about. So it might be intentionally designed. Here's a private company example, which I think is fiendish. And because it's so clever, it's 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 cool, despite its fiendishness, which is uh, mail and rebates. So you may get a cell phone, this happened to me a number of years ago, I confess, where the cell phone is really expensive, but I had a mail-in form which I could send in and get some significant amount of money back. So the cell phone actually cost a lot less than I was paying because I just had to mail in the form. I was very excited about that. And then the next day I thought I should probably mail in the form, but I thought I'm kind of busy, so I'm not going to. And the next day I thought the same thing. And the third day I said, okay, I'm going to mail in the form. And I lost the form. (laughs) And the, the percentage of people who delay mailing in the form and then lose the form is actually really high. And the companies really know that, which is a way of saying that they use sludge as a way of serving their economic goal. In the case of the government, it might be to make a a seemingly really generous program less generous. And in the case of company, it might be they use sludge to make something that people think they'll benefit from, something they won't, in fact, benefit from in a large number of cases. So that's a real phenomenon. In, In other cases, though, so 
It's devised by some lawyer. These are my brothers and sisters. I'm a lawyer. <laughs> or, or someone who is basically just not empathetic enough, mm-hmm. not in the sense that they're unkind in their heart, but they're thinking that form's easy, or I could do that, and I would, which may or may not be true, but let's just stipulate it is true. They're not thinking that the people who have to fill out the form that they helped write or that they mandated are busy, maybe less educated. Not attorneys. They're not lawyers. The jargon to them, it's, it's incomprehensible. I'll tell you a little story, shall I, of my own experience with sludge? Yeah. Sure. I, and it's partly because I wrote the book. I went into, I tried to fill out the form for a vaccine booster provider who shall go nameless because we love them all. It is a well-known place you can go to get vaccines, not a hospital. And the form was just too hard for me. It had too many things in it that were incomprehensible. And I went to the place directly and said, can I just sign up and get the booster? And the people said, no, you have to sign up online. (laughs) And I said, the form's really hard. And they looked at me like bureaucrats, like, okay, not our job. I said, the form's really hard. I said, I'm a lawyer and the the form's hard. And and they said, we can't do it here. And then I said something that indicated the passion that's in my book. We're talking about vaccines here, and some mm-hmm. people aren't going to get their vaccines because, because they can't fill this. out your form. Yeah. I might have said it a little more dramatically than that. And then one of the five people looked at me like a human being and not like a bureaucrat and said, I'll help you. Mm. <laughs> and of course, they could fill out the form. <laughs> And they knew how to do it. It was for them second nature, but just for an ordinary person, the number of things. Now, I don't want to have too much self-pity here. It wasn't that hard to fill out the form, but you did need an assortment of documents, which not everyone has as handy. And, and there was complete innocence in this case. It wasn't a matter of trying to ration vaccine boosters or anything. It was just obliviousness to the negative effect of the sludge on a certain percentage of the population. And I, I can report that I did two vaccine checks, and one of them was basically sludge-free. It was really easy. You just had to fill in a few blanks. And the other was sludge-full. You needed to basically tell them where your grandparents lived when they were in their 20s and right. not quite that but that but in that direction and that's not what america needs now it's it's a great story and it it also really illustrates to me the aspect of advocacy and again going back to more vulnerable populations where perhaps to your point there's not the same level of education but i also just think about you know we have the kind of jobs where If I have to sit on hold for an hour and then yell at someone and then demand to speak to a manager and then look up online and find the phone number of the CEO, I'm willing to do that. And I will. And I do it all the time. And that's how we get our way. And we get someone to work around the system and say, I'll help you. But like, how many people are in a situation where they can do that? I mean, not probably not most people in America. And so it's so infuriating. You're completely right. So a number of years ago, the woman who took care of my child back then, she was a housekeeper and a nanny, got herself into an awkward legal situation. She didn't do anything wrong. She just made a mistake and she owed a lot of money. And it it took a little sludge to get it. They sued her. 
and they sued about 50 people. And it took a lot of sludge to get out of that. Now, I'm a lawyer, and I called the lawyer, and I got her out. It didn't take much sludge on my part. She wouldn't have been able to handle it. Um, and to this day, I regret that I helped her, but not the 49 other people, uh-huh. uh, all of whom were you know, vulnerable, not extremely well-educated, not able to do with a threatening legal uh, legal situation. I have to say, based on your story, both stories actually, that you should probably be carrying copies of Sludge and just, you know, flagellating <laughs> folks and systems in your path. I do want to turn the turn the tide a little bit. So we've been talking about the negatives of Sludge, but you've also talked about how there can be creative or thoughtful Sludge. Are are there positive cases other than just making sure the right people get what they need? Yes, definitely. So you can imagine a case, well, we've all seen this, where you start to do something online and uh, you're exercised or you're inattentive. And you might be severing a connection with some service or some club or company or something. Sure. And and they might ask, are you sure you want to? Mm-hmm. And that might be a really good question to ask if you're doing it by mistake. So all of us have sometimes pushed uh, a button or clicked something where something terrible is about to happen, and there will be a little sludge which will say something like, really? And, and that sludge, that's great sludge. Yeah, they make me type the word delete now. Yeah, good. And, <laughs> and, and it might be annoying, and, and for a certain percentage, maybe the vast majority, it just is annoying. But if a non-trivial minority, it's, it's a big benefit. That, that's great. So in some places, to get divorced, you have to go through sludge. That, I think, is reasonably regarded as a really good idea so that people don't get divorced just because they're mad that day. Uh, marriage sometimes has a little sludge before it. That's a pretty big thing to do. You don't want to do it because, you know, you had a great encounter on a beach. I'd love some sludge <laughs> Drunk in on Vegas. getting a gun, too. Yes. So there is data suggesting that a waiting period, which is a form of sludge to get a a gun saves lives. So mm-hmm. a three to five day waiting period, which a number of states have, saves hundreds of lives every year. And it's people buy guns sometimes just because they're really mad. And that's horrifying. I think literally horrifying. And if they're told you can't get the gun for three days, they calm down. And it looks like we could save a lot of lives if if all states had three to five day waiting periods before you can get a gun. So the point you're getting at is that quite apart from the question of our people getting benefits, which they have a right to, sludge might be designed to ensure that that's true. It's also the case that you you can avoid recklessness or impetuousness by imposing a little sludge before people do something that they might regret. I'd like some sludge on the sweets drawer at the house. <laughs> you and me both. And I wish that. that I wish donut purchases. <laughs> you had to be filled out in triplicate. I wish they asked me. You could little, use a little more friction. I wish they would ask me for the information that I couldn't find when I was trying to make my <laughs> vaccine booster appointment. So in the work that we do, sludge 
kind of shows up to us as organizational debt. So policies and roles and rules and ways of working and assumptions that don't necessarily serve a purpose any longer, but can be allowed to pile up and don't get refactored and require a lot of payment (laughs) and debt service from the people inside that system. When it becomes really entrenched and calcified like that, how do we start to eliminate sludge piece by piece from your perspective? Tell you something that both Democratic and Republican presidents have sometimes liked, which is a periodic requirement of sludge reinvestigation. That's not Mm. the most eloquent way to put it. The basic idea is that every six months or every year, there's a requirement that the people who impose sludge have to make sure the sludge is still justified. So it might be some requirement that has paperwork requirements when that's not needed anymore because people can do it electronically. And if you require them to investigate every year, let's say, they'll see that. Or there may be some requirements imposed on employees that have been completely superseded by the nature of the job or by what else they're doing. And uh-huh. to have something like a sludge audit, let's just use that term, is is can be a really good idea. Uh, I'd, I'd love it if we had this term sludge audits as a familiar part of organizational practice. Even the term sludge audit can be energizing in a, in a good way because yeah. it makes people laugh a little bit and see the ridiculousness of what they're doing that right. was maybe created 20 years ago and has no point anymore. Are there real life examples of sludge audits being performed correctly? that you've actually seen play out or heard tell of? Yes. So the United States government, believe it or not, is required by law to conduct an annual sludge audit. The agencies in the federal government don't always do what the law requires, but they usually do. I can sense that. It's it's called the Information Collection Budget of the United States. I think I'm its only faithful reader, but it is, (laughs) believe it or not, a fascinating document. It's a sludge audit limited to paperwork requirements. What the Information Collection Budget of the United States does, and you can find it online and no one has to pay for it, it's free, it's really boring and really interesting, is it tells you how much in the way of paperwork requirements are imposed is imposed by the Department of Education, the Department of Agriculture, the Environmental Protection Agency, and the CHAMP, the Department of Treasury. The reason the Department of Treasury is the champ is the Internal Revenue Service imposes something north of $8 billion annual hours and paperwork requirements. That should, by the way, be a scandal, the magnitude wow. of that number, right. 8 billion hours. But even if you have an agency that's imposing, let's say, 200 million hours, that's, that's a lot of hours that people are having to face. And it is a sludge audit. And occasionally agency heads or even presidents have thought, what are we doing here? And that's inspired reductions. The United Nations, believe it or not, as of very recently, is focused on sludge and sludge audits within the UN. And for anyone who's dealt with the UN, for all its achievements, it has a lot of sludge in it. 
And there's an effort underway now to do some reducing. In Australia, there's been some sludge audits, and and that is looking pretty productive in getting the government to reduce sludge. And we're seeing in real time sludge audits popping up. I, I get notes. Uh, basically, the book hasn't been out very long, but I get notes basically once a day from someone at a hospital or at a school or at a company saying we're doing a sludge audit. And some of them are informal, just seeing how much time are employees spending on forms and administrative, let's call it nonsense. And then they see it, they've cataloged it, and they decide that's what our employees are spending their time on. And I just got one note today, even as we speak, from uh, a doctor who wants to do a sludge audit in a very important domain of medical practice, where the idea is that people are dying because the amount of sludge imposed on patients and nurses and doctors in getting a process uh, going is too high. And that means the process doesn't get going. And the process is one which, if it gets going, saves lives. Right. That's incredible. It is interesting to me when you think about laws of large numbers here, how a minute here, a minute there, in additional forms adds up over 300 million or a billion people. And it starts to be, you know, these massing, massively meaningful numbers. The other thing that it actually makes me think of is when we deal with organizational debt, we'll sometimes do what's called like an org debt bounty. And so it's not really an audit, but it is actually empowering everyone in the ecosystem to elevate or surface where they run into debt and highlight that for review. So it's kind of an ongoing audit, if you will, with a bit of a, a bit of a contest edge to it. So perhaps there can be a sludge bounty as well. If so, I have some particular state departments that I'm ready to assist. I think it's a fantastic idea. So there are various ways of trying to find out from people who are actually bearing the burden of sludge, mm. what the burdens are. And a bounty idea is great. A long time ago, I worked for the Army Corps of Engineers, actually when I was in, a col in college, and they had a suggestion box where you could fill out suggestions, and I'm sure a lot of them were unhelpful. As, as, a, <laughs> as a kind of kid, I hadn't thought about this for years, so I thank you for the idea, for the for the jarring the memory. I, I just, as a college student, put a checklist for what environmental impact statements should include. I was writing them and uh, the document that told you what to put in the environmental impact statements was extremely long and really hard to fathom so i wrote a little checklist that was maybe one page it's basically for myself so that i could remember what to put in the darn environmental impact statement or the blessed environmental impact statement and <laughs> and i won a prize and the Army Corps of Engineers, it wasn't a fantastic idea I had, but it was, it was basically a sludge buster because to figure out what you had to put in the environmental impact. Right. State, How much time is that? So much time. And if you had a little checklist, then uh, any writer would think, oh, those are the 10 things I have to do. I love that. So while we're on the topic of sludge audits, in the book you write, people dedicated to consumer protection, economic growth, workers' rights, environmental protection, sex equality, voting rights, poverty reduction, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Do not march under colorful banners containing the words sludge reduction now, but in light of their own goals, they might want to start doing exactly that. Why can and should sludge unite 
or unify a vast coalition? And why do we need anti-sledge activists? <laughs> Great. So this is one of those issues where whoever you vote for, wherever you live, what God you pray to or whether you pray to God doesn't really matter. Sludge is a problem. So if you are trying to make healthcare better, let's say, you may have views on the issues that divide Republicans and Democrats, but the idea that patients have to fill out all these forms when they're trying to get help for, let's say, heart disease or cancer, that's really bad. And if nurses who are struggling, you know, to do what is a hard and extraordinary job have to spend a lot of time dealing with incomprehensible forms, that's, that's, that's a problem. And uh, studies show that the cost of healthcare in our country is not trivially a result of the administrative burdens we impose on doctors and patients and administrators and hospitals. That doesn't even say anything about patients. So mm -hmm. if you've ever had uh, a problem with a hospital that's had sludge involved in it, you want that to stop. And, and it doesn't matter whether you're Republican or Democrat. If you are an employee and the number of things you have to deal with, let's say, in order to become an employee or in order to get some benefit, which all employees are entitled to, if there's a lot of sludge in the process, your life is worse. And, mm -hmm. and that's something you, you want to fix, which is why there are some issues that, you know, abortion does divide people and whether a lot of sludge before women get abortions is a way of protecting fetuses or a way of intruding on constitutional right, there we can have a fair debate. But most of the real world of sludge doesn't have that characteristic at all. If it's the case that in order to get educated, you know, you have to deal with a lot of stuff before you can even apply for the money you need to get to college, that's, that's, that's a problem. And in a red state or a blue state, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. Well, in the vanishingly small list of things that are not polarized, it does seem like this could, could rise to the surface, certainly for those non-sort of socially critical areas where it's, we all want more entrepreneurship, right? So how do we get the roadblocks out of the way? I am interested in not so much when we have sludge, how to get rid of it, but rather, how do we prevent it in the first place? So are there, are there techniques or ways of thinking, ways of designing systems that can prevent it from accumulating at all? What a great question. So a sludge audit is after the fact. We need to invent a new term, the three of us, for before the fact stuff <laughs> that would take the sludge audits, make the sludge audits unnecessary. Thinking a little bit that there's design choices that are often sludge minimizing before the fact, and they're and they're really smart. So some companies you can kind of name them with respect to their products are very sludge free, such that when you open them, you know how to use them. There isn't a lot of literal nonsense that you well not literal nonsense, but metaphorical nonsense that you have to go through in order to make them operate. And uh, to think hard about design 
before the fact is is a really good idea. So you're asking a question I haven't focused on. I'm, I'm very grateful for that. That Dick Thaler and I wrote a book called Nudge, which sure. rhymes with sludge. And uh, the leading concept in Nudge is about choice architecture, where if you design uh, a store or a website or an interview, there's an architecture in it, and the architecture will have effects on what people choose, even if you're not intending to create that. And uh, kind of choice architecture 1.0 is still the best idea in choice architecture, I think, is, is make it easy for people. And, right. and that means maybe make it automatic. So if people are automatically enrolled, let's say, in a pension plan, that can make it so that there's zero sludge before the fact. You don't have to do a sludge up. There's no sludge. And that could be a good idea if it's a good pension plan. Now, if it's a, a bad one, automatically to enroll people isn't a very nice thing to do. But if we have a lot of design options for employees, let's say, or investors, or there's my daughter in the background <laughs> saying the most beautiful world, word in the English language, daddy, but and we try to make her experience maximally sludge-free. But if there are design choices before the fact that make sludge audits unnecessary because the magnitude of sludge is very small or zero, that's much better than having to go back and uh, retrofit. Well, I, I hereby dub the next book either Budge or Fudge. <laughs> Depending on how you want to interpret it. Thank you for that. And I, I like both concepts, especially fudge. I, I, I have, it goes down smooth. I have a lot of affection for fudge, but I have no expertise yet, so I'm not sure if I could do a book. I love it. I mean, one, just follow up on the designing sludge-free systems to begin with. Two things came to mind immediately for me, and I'm sure between the three of us, we could come up with a whole list. But one is because I just tried to book a plane ticket, and I noticed that my existing travel funds uh, cannot be applied to that plane ticket. And I asked my platinum-level customer service person to screen share with me and show me how to book the ticket using the travel funds because I know it to be impossible. And so my only point in relaying this story is that I think in designing any kind of sludge-free processor system, I expect the designer to be able to use the processor system just as a baseline, just as a starting point. Imagine if we all ate our own sludge, what might happen? <laughs> there, there's a great book on website design called Don't Make Me Think. Um, and it's basically just what you say, that if the designer and the user don't, don't have to think, it's just completely intuitive, so they don't have to do much in order to get what they need or they're entitled to, that's, that's beautiful. So to wrap, it's cool that Sludge rhymes with Nudge. I'm a big fan of Nudge, and I, the rhyming hadn't occurred to me. I'll be honest with you. But I'm besides the rhyming, I'm curious. Were there any other names bandied about besides Sledge, which is such a good one that I can't imagine another one, but I am curious. Were other nouns in the running? You know, for Nudge, that title, we came too late. We were going to call the book Libertarian Paternalism. No one would have bought that book. <laughs> 
And then we thought we should call libertarian paternalism is not an oxymoron. For dummies. And then we thought even my mother wouldn't buy that book. So nudge was a, a late entry. For about a week, we thought we'd call it one-click paternalism. That's not that terrible, but it's, it is terrible. It's not as terrible as the others. Uh, sludge was the title all along. So okay. it was it was the organizing idea. It was it had no rivals as the title of the book. It's a great one. That's fantastic. No rivals is a pretty good place to draw things to a close, Cass. So where can our listeners find out more about you and your prolific work? Well, there's a new bookseller called Amazon.com that seems to have a lot of books, including, I'm told, mine. This particular book is uh, published. I'm grateful to MIT Press for publishing it. And MIT Press has a website, a sludge-free website. Booksellers everywhere may, there's some chance, they will have sludge. The book, there's a 100% chance they will have sludge. (laughs) The phenomenon. Um, For me, there's a Wikipedia page, which is all full of untruths, but some of it's true. And uh, on my Harvard website, I don't think there are any falsehoods last I checked. Fantastic. Well, I hope everybody out there reads this fantastic book on hopefully with hopefully a frictionless experience getting it delivered to your home. Cass, thank you so much for joining us today. It was really a pleasure. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Awesome. And a quick tip of the hat, as always, to Taylor Marvin for making all three of us sound good. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work. Get in touch with us by emailing podcast at theready.com. And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something. 